This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The Enforced Calm and the Sudden Storm. Three articles by John Horvath II. Those who live in areas that are prone to hurricanes experience the truth of the adage, the calm before the storm. Hurricanes seem to absorb all the bad weather in a broad area, focusing it into a single massive storm. For this reason, the day before a hurricane hits is usually beautiful, clear, and drenched with sunshine. The weather is so fine, in fact, that it is easy to forget about the approaching storm. The first half of the year 2020 has been much like that. The government's reaction to the coronavirus contained many people in their homes, replacing usually frantic lives with a sense of sameness, even boredom. Then came the disturbances that accompanied the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis on May 25th, a very serious storm that smashed the entire nation. This episode of the Return to Order Moment considers both the calm and the storm. In the first article, John Horvat II considers the effects of the coronavirus shutdown on America's homes and families. The second considers the revolutionary aspects of the disturbances that followed Mr. Floyd's horrible death. The third article considers the direction that Americans need to receive from its leaders to weather the effects of the storm. The first article is, What Will You Remember About the Spring of 2020? It was first published on CNS News on June 3, 2020. One thing many will remember about the coronavirus crisis of 2020 is that it happened during a radiant spring. Everywhere, people tell of noticing the budding trees, the loud symphony of birds, and enjoying beautiful weather and sunshine. In some way, the spring provided some solace amid the crisis. Most cannot say if the spring of 2020 was any more dazzling than others that came earlier. The difference was that people noticed this spring. There was time to see more. The unsettling silence of lockdown allowed people to listen more. Things slowed down, and people could ponder what they had never absorbed before. Circumstances forced them to observe what they used to ignore. Thus, a stunning spring came alive. The noticing of things had similar social consequences. People also speak about the deepening of family relationships. The lockdown did force people together. The presence of an outside threat created conditions for forging stronger family ties. For some families, not all, this time represented a period of restoration. Indeed, the family bond survived the demands of the lockdown. Inside it, there is no need for social distancing, since the unit is by nature intimate and resistant. The home also took on a greater significance. For a shining moment, it became more than just a place to eat and sleep inside a busy work schedule. The home once more reigned as the place of social conviviality, where all, young and old, might gather. Many young people returned home, which is a natural place of shelter in times of crisis. Finally, the uncertainty of the future turned many minds to God. 
Even with the absence of church services, they prayed. Overwhelmed by the crisis, people sensed their contingency and turned to God. In the silence of lockdown, some used this occasion to mend their relationships with God or asked existential questions leading in His direction. Others even saw the crisis as a wake-up call to amend their lives. However, it would be wrong to remember the dazzling spring of 2020 as only a time of solace and joy. It was also a time of great tragedy. Death visited the nation, and the threat of death generated fears that permeated all society. Economic uncertainty devastated everything. Stress and anxiety increased as the tensions of living in close quarters also had a negative impact. Indeed, spring 2020 will be remembered as the time when society stopped. Humans are social beings that instinctively seek out others so that together they might prosper. Thus, families look for intermediary social units related to communities, workplaces, and faith that provide vital support in times of crisis. Most intermediary bodies were locked down. Essential human contacts and affections were reduced to live-streamed substitutes that can never satisfy. Thus, most suffered from the pain of not having other social units outside the family available to buttress them in the time when they were so much needed. The antisocial nature of the virus favored a distancing that was more than physical. It was, indeed, a social distancing, since each felt the other represented a potential health threat and was, therefore, to be avoided. When society stops, it causes destruction. All those intensely human and social outlets, stores, cafes, schools, and cultural establishments have no other means to survive, save through intercourse with others. The crisis cut them off from the air they breathe. The longer the lockdown, the more serious the damage was. Many of these outlets suffocated to death and are now irremediably lost. The most painful lockdown of an intermediary association was that of the church. The faithful were cut off from the sacraments that are the means to sanctify and achieve union with God. It was as if God was quarantined, since none could visit his house. Many will remember the spring of 2020 as a time when they were not allowed to see a sanctuary lamp. Without intermediary social units to act as buffers, the individual is exposed fully to the only society left outside of the family, the state. The lockdown subjugated individuals to the coercive power of the state. While such powers are needed in times of emergency, the spring of 2020 saw draconian measures that caused confusion, hardship, and chaos. The intermediary associations that normally mediate the powers of the state and make them more human were locked down. Thus, the state's action appeared more inhuman, imposing, and even capricious. The omnipotent state moved into the social vacuum left behind by the locked-down institutions. The stimulus packages, benefits, and subsidies turned the state into the solution to all problems. The state recklessly borrowed trillions of dollars against the future and threatens to borrow trillions more to make itself the central power that will take on an ever more dominant and dangerous role in the private lives of millions.
Massive plans by the state are in place to invade the private lives of individuals in the name of public health and safety. The spring of 2020 will thus be remembered as a time of calm before the storm. The great crisis did not strike America and the world in a single devastating blow that immediately immersed everything in misery. Everything is now in suspended animation, while the shock of what happened sinks in. Savings, stimulus packages, and safety nets provided a cushion to mitigate the effects of this immense crisis over the spring. However, with tens of millions unemployed and bankruptcies multiplying, the scenario will rival the Great Depression. When the stimulus checks and subsidies inevitably end, people will start feeling the pain. Meanwhile, the virus threatens to return. Racial violence flares. International tensions increased. Elections loom in a polarized America. As the nation enters an uncertain future, remember those calm moments of the spring of 2020 when family and faith provided solace. Those same pillars will be vital in the approaching winter of discontent. This is the end of What Will You Remember About the Spring of 2020 by John Horvath II. As all America experienced, the storm after the calm was indeed sudden and violent. Mr. Horvat considers the nature of the storm in his article, These are not riots. This is revolution. In the face of the violence and rioting rocking the country, we face a painful reality. While all must deplore the death of George Floyd, we must recognize that the riots reflect a society in crisis, not bad law enforcement policies or systemic injustice. We need to acknowledge a much greater problem than racism, which is only a symptom. The greater problem is a moral crisis of massive proportions. This crisis prepared the way for the violence we are experiencing. These are not just riots. This is a revolution to change America. It will have dire consequences for the nation. The moral crisis is not new. For decades, many have denounced the country's moral decay. The sexual revolution of the 60s unleashed the unbridled passions, which destroyed countless good customs, families, and communities. Today, the mad rush for gratification destroys individuals by questioning the notion of identity. What is new is how the crisis is intensifying with the anxieties of the coronavirus lockdown and the looming elections. Now more than ever, we see a polarized America coming apart. The moral fabric that keeps the nation together is unraveling, preparing the way for revolution. All that remains are fragments that are cobbled together into some appearances of normality. We are witnesses to the sad reality that it only takes an inflammatory event for the whole nation to explode into chaos. As the devastation of the coronavirus lockdown showed, much can be destroyed in little time. Any moral crisis comes from a refusal to abide by a moral law that is normative for human behavior. It can happen when people no longer admit an objective notion of right and wrong. They reject the Ten Commandments as reasonable rules for life. Things fall apart when the determination of what is right rests on what makes each individual happy. In such conditions, societies easily fall into anarchy. 
Indeed, huge swaths of American society have fallen into moral decay because of a refusal to acknowledge a moral law. This crisis embraces all social, racial, ethnic, and income groups. Since it is a destructive force, the most apparent manifestations of this decay are found in broken communities. Thus, it is not a coincidence that the common denominator found in areas of unrest and violence is not racial but moral in nature. Whether in decayed inner cities or opiate-ridden rural areas, we always find the absence of moral law. We find broken families without fathers or stability. There is sexual promiscuity that admits no restraint. Without sound family structures, crime and violence dominate communities. Thus, we have turned those areas into war zones. We send our police daily into battle against criminal elements and deranged persons. Adding to the decay is the violence that occurs when churches are empty. People have no notion of a loving God, the author of the moral law that brings order to society. Instead, they seek their spiritual highs in drugs that introduce cycles of despair into their lives, deprived of meaning. The rule is that in areas where morality is missing, anything can happen. The most brutal acts are possible. There is no possibility of social harmony. We find ourselves blaming the system instead of the sins and actions of individuals who destroy order. It would be wrong to affirm that only broken communities experience this decay. Analogous situations where the moral sense is lost are everywhere, even among higher-income groups. Among the radical rioters can be found every race, profession, and income level. News reports show organizers to be lawyers, professors, and even clergy who work behind the scenes to carry out their agendas. Indeed, such riots are never the product of spontaneous forces. However, what unites these radical rioters is their rejection of moral law. They hate order and restraint. They take advantage of others who have lost the moral sense to participate in their desire to destroy the remnants of Western civilization and a notion of the rule of law. Thus, the existence of a moral crisis prepares the way not for riots, but revolution. That is to say, the replacement of a present legitimate order of things for another illegitimate state of things. We must refuse to follow the revolutionary narrative now being proposed by the media. We must reject the idea that the riots are the product of a class struggle that triggers and even justifies the violence. We must face the painful reality of our moral crisis and assume personal responsibility for our actions. Above all, we can defeat a revolutionary narrative with another one. That narrative is the rich legacy of the church and Christianity that sustain a moral law that leads to harmony, justice, and order. The nation must return to God, who can do all things, and return the country to order if we call upon him with a humble and contrite heart. This is the end of These Are Not Riots, This Is Revolution. The last article in this podcast looks at a specific moment in the storm. 
the criticism of President Trump by Washington, D.C. Archbishop Wilton Gregory. In this article, entitled Three Things Archbishop Gregory Should Have Said Instead of Criticizing the President, Mr. Horvat looks at the needs that people require from their leaders in times of crisis. This article was first published on LifeSite News on June 3, 2020. Washington Archbishop Wilton Gregory lashed out against President Trump and the First Lady's visit to the St. John Paul II National Shrine in the nation's capital on June 2nd. This long-planned event caused an uproar because it happened the day after the president walked to St. John's Episcopal Church near the White House. He visited the historic church the day after protesters had set it afire on May 31st. When protesters were cleared from the area to facilitate his walk, the media and the left jumped on the incident, which they labeled a photo op held at the expense of poor protesters. They are joined by progressive clergy who turned their criticism into their own media event and photo ops. Even the bridge-building Jesuit Father James Martin tweeted his indignation at the president's religious gesture. When the president visited the Catholic shrine on Tuesday, the archbishop's official statement insinuated that the directors of the John Paul II National Shrine were being manipulated by the administration to serve as a presidential campaign backdrop. Quote, I find it baffling and reprehensible that any Catholic facility would allow itself to be so egregiously misused and manipulated in a fashion that violates our religious principles, which call us to defend the rights of all people, even those with whom we might disagree, Archbishop Gregory said in a statement referring to someone with whom he disagrees. That statement carried much weight, as Archbishop Gregory is the former president of the U.S. Bishops' Conference. The prelate abandoned the vague style normally used by bishops in dealing with American politics and leaders. He severely judged the president's actions and claimed to know his interior motives, which God alone knows. The message engaging in petty politics is not one that Catholics and Americans need at this time. The key issues that need to be addressed go far beyond whether one likes the president or not. Indeed, it is baffling that Catholics hear only this posturing when they crave spiritual leadership and direction. The vague progressive platitudes invoking social justice and human dignity do nothing to stop the violence and everything to provide it cover. Catholics need to hear three things from Archbishop Gregory in this time of crisis. The first thing Catholics need to hear from Archbishop Gregory is a loud and unequivocal condemnation of what is happening in the riots. The brutal incidents that sparked the protest must not be the pretext for far worse violence. Since when do two wrongs make a right? The Church's role is to speak out against injustice, violence, and attacks on the most vulnerable. It is time to speak out against the agitators who are employing terror tactics to destroy the remnants of order in our society. There should be prayers for the helpless women, old men, and children who are ruthlessly attacked in the streets or even trapped in burning buildings while rioters blocked the access of fire engines. Something must be said to console poor owners whose small businesses and lives are ruined. There should be special prayers for the safety of the policemen who nightly risk and give their lives to protect their neighbors from harm. Indeed, quote, 
greater love than this no man hath, that a man lay down his life for his friends. The Gospel of St. John, chapter 15, verse 13. The Archbishop should censure the senseless destruction of property and the defacement of monuments. The Church's places of worship are set on fire and covered with graffiti. Vague calls for solidarity with protests which turn violent only inflames the situation and supports the class struggle narratives that are so contrary to the Gospels that promote social harmony. A second message that Catholics need to hear from the Archbishop is about the reopening of the churches and the sacraments. Whole regions of the nation still do not have access to the sacraments. People are dying without confession and last rites. At a time when protesters crowd the streets, churches that can hold hundreds are often limited to 10 or 25 people. There seems to be no ecclesiastical hurry to reopen. Catholics want to hear a consistent message from the bishops, assuring them that they feel the urgency of their plight. Leaders need to be vocal in pointing out the contradiction between semi-full restaurants and department stores and the near-empty churches. Have pity on the faithful who lack the spiritual nourishment of the sacraments, lest they perish. A final message for Catholics from the Archbishop would be the recognition that the violence and social strife are a consequence of the sins of the nation. This is a time to talk about sin. The sins of public blasphemy, procured abortion, same-sex marriage, drag queen story hours for children, drug use, and other such evils that are tearing the country apart. Catholic bishops should be leading the faithful in prayer, asking for pardon. There should be acts of reparation in reopened churches and special pleas to the Mother of God to have pity on the nation and bring the violence to an end. A final element would be a call upon the faithful to amend their lives and sin no more. In short, the message that needs to be heard is the same one given to Our Lady at Fatima in 1917. Today, the world is witnessing the consequences of ignoring her warnings. There is little chance Archbishop Gregory will deliver these messages. Most of our Catholic bishops prefer the empty pronouncements that conform to the latest social gospel fads or errant theologians. They proceed down the path of self-destruction. The faithful who insist upon following church tradition receive little encouragement. Meanwhile, America burns. It is most baffling. This is the end of The Enforced Calm and the Sudden Storm. Three articles by John Horvath II. Thank you so much for listening. To read these or find related articles, please visit our websites at www.tfp.org and www.returntoorder.org. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. In that way, you can help Return to Order be more effective. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2020 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.